Are you worried about your children? Are they having problems that concern you? Um, are they depressed or showing signs of anxiety? Are their test scores not what you would like them to be? Are they overweight? Can an iPad raise a child? That question might seem absurd, but many American children are effectively being raised on screens. What are the consequences? Tune in for the answers. Every generation loves to complain about the generation coming along, but at the same time, there's a very sharp change with kids who were born in 1995 and afterwards, surprisingly sharp. Beginning with kids born in 1995, they spend a lot less time going out with friends, they don't get a driver's license as often, they don't drink as much, they don't go out on dates, they don't work for money as much. What are they doing? They're spending a lot more time sitting on their beds with their devices, interacting that way. These are the first kids who got social media when they were 13, roughly. They were subjected to much more anti-bullying content in their schools, much more adult supervision. They were raised in the years after 9-11. They were given much less recess and free play with no child left behind. There was much more testing pushed down into earlier grades. So in a lot of ways, Gen Z has been denied the independence, the independent play that previous generations got. Gen Z is, has been raised with what's called moral dependency. There's always been an adult there for them to go to, and so we don't know if this is for sure the reason, but they seem to have more difficulty working out problems on their own. When we protect children from unpleasantness, from conflicts, from insults, from teasing, from exclusion, we are setting them up to be weak, to be more easily damaged, to be more easily discouraged. The Coddling of the American Mind. That is the title of that book by Jonathan Haidt, who we just watched. He is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Although he's from a business school, he's a psychologist, so it's appropriate that he would write about the coddling of the American mind. And, and note there, he talks about this issue of moral dependence, right? That we are not creating independent young adults, uh, children and young adults who will become mature, independent adults because we are coddling them. I think that is decidedly true, and that is not just the opinion of a grumpy middle-aged guy. I think that the data and evidence point to an American youth uh, cohort that has largely been coddled, and the outcomes are really dangerous for our country and for our futures. Now, why have they been coddled? They've largely been coddled because of this, what I would refer to as the dictatorship of safetyism. We have turned safety almost into a god, uh, that it is a goal that is achievable no matter what the consequences. That safetyism uber alles, safetyism above all, uh, that, that being safe has to be the primary and in some ways all-consuming goal um, and ruler of our lives, particularly as it relates to children. Rather than having, as all of human history basically until the recent moment, has understood that life involves risks and that risks should be managed, but that risk is not a four-letter word. <laughs> a life that ignores risk or a life that seeks to have no risks at all is, number one, not worth living, but also paradoxically simply presents and, and creates far greater risks down the line. In other words, the risk is inevitable. 
your life will involve risk. For those of us who are Christian, it's because we live in a fallen world. Uh, and, and anyone who believes in the Bible, anyone who believes in the Judeo-Christian tradition knows we live in a, in a fallen world. The world was not supposed to be this way, but with the sin of man, we live in a fallen world. And in that fallen world, uh, risks abound. Risk is not something that is just present. It, it abounds in our world, in our society, in our lives. Now, how we manage risk, how we approach risk, and what is, what is a responsible approach to risk-taking, you know, those are the decisions, and sometimes very difficult decisions, that are presented to every thinking, living, breathing human being, but particularly presented to parents and to all those who, um, who have as their, as their life's mission or their job uh, the care of children. So not just for parents, but educators, coaches, policymakers, mentors, um, all of us who have roles, significant roles in the lives of children need to, on an ongoing basis, engage in responsible risk management um, and risk analysis. What is an appropriate level of risk for each child uh, at each respective age? And I would submit to you and I think Professor Haight would submit to you, that we have unfortunately uh, descended into a bad place in America as a society where we're seeking to avoid nearly all risk for our children. And in doing so, we are, we are elevating safetyism into a golden calf to be worshipped and creating children and young adults who then become uh, adults of age who are unprepared and unskilled at functioning as real productive citizens of society. I think that is the reality. And by the way, this, uh, this thesis of mine, which I think many of you probably would share, um, it, was, it was brought to mind and it, it was the, one of the, uh, the motivational reasons for me to do this show to talk about this and to investigate this of, you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And how can, we, how can we better educate and lead and form our youth in this country, in our families, in our uh, larger circles, in our schools? Uh, how can we approach these topics? And, you know, and why is it imperative that we do approach them? Uh, a lot of this was spurred to me by a commentary that I read in the Journal of Pediatrics. And here it is. This is the headline. Decline in independent activity as a cause of decline in children's mental well-being. Summary of the evidence. Um, and this is written by PhDs and MDs for the Journal of Pediatrics. By the way, Journal of Pediatrics, not a publication that I normally pay a lot of attention to because there's a lot of garbage, frankly, that comes out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Uh, I mentioned NYU uh, University, New York University. NYU, not a school that I normally pay a lot of attention to because, frankly, a lot of garbage coming out of NYU. But even platforms and institutions that are corrupted uh, can at times, and I think both the Journal of Pediatrics and NYU are deeply corrupted, uh, but they can at times produce fantastic work. And we on the political right, on the culturally conservative side, uh, we as practicing Christians should still pay attention to the good work that is put out uh, that sometimes emanates and flows from institutions which we normally revile, you know, for, for intelligent reasons. And, you know, I'll give you some other examples of that. Um, uh, Boston College, an institution, a, a university that I have no time for, uh, which I think is thoroughly lost uh, and certainly, you know, pretends to be Catholic, but is, is Catholic in name only, uh, has a fantastic theologian, Peter Kraft. 
University of Virginia, you know, another institution which I think Thomas Jefferson would be embarrassed about if he were to come back today and see the institution that he founded. But there's a guy there, uh, a scholar doing incredible work on a lot of these kinds of issues, family-related issues named Brad Wilcox. And uh, perhaps the greatest example I would present to you, because you've probably seen him a lot on TV, I hope you read his work, is Victor Davis Hanson. VDH is, in my opinion, one of the most astute observers of, of public policy and culture in all of the United States. And amazingly, he works for Stanford, of all places. So those would be three more examples of, uh, of scholars who are producing incredible work, even though they are part of institutions that are, for the most part, detestable. And institutions, by the way, getting back to our topic du jour, institutions that have subscribed almost totally to this false god of safetyism which is unfortunately afflicting so much of American society, but particularly as it relates to children. So from this article, I want to read you their thesis out of the Journal of Pediatrics about the decline of independent activity, particularly play, unstructured, unsupervised play, as a cause for the decline in children's mental well-being in this country. And here's the quote that I want you to, to, to see and, and ponder on, please. Our thesis is that a primary cause of the rise in mental disorders is a decline over decades in opportunities for children and teens to play, roam, and engage in other activities independent of direct oversight and control by adults. So... There's, there's two parts to that thesis which are very important, and we're going to dive into both of them. And by the way, I concur 100%. I mean, I think they give very good evidence-based reasons um, to back their thesis in this excellent paper. But I think intuitively, before I even read the paper, my answer was, yes, uh, this, is, this is correct. There is a cause and effect aspect here. And, and, but the, the first part of the thesis is uh, that we're going to explore is the rise in mental disorders. Um, you might think that it's true. You might have a sense that that is true, that mental disorders, that pathologies are rising among young people in this country. Well, I'm going to show you demonstrably uh, that it is, in fact, happening. It's probably much worse than you suspect, unless you're somebody who follows these subject matters closely. Um, and for all of us who have roles in children's lives, again, whether as teachers or parents or coaches or policymakers, need to be aware of just how bad the rise in mental disorders is among young people. And I'm going to give you the evidence of that. And then, but secondly, is there in fact this cause-effect relationship? Because of course, correlation does not uh, necessarily equal causation. It is 100% it is correlated that the rise in mental disorders of young people correlates alongside a, a lessening, a significant reduction in independent activity for young people particularly as it relates to unsupervised, undirected play, but in, in other areas of independent activity as well. But is there a cause and effect relationship where it's not just correlation, but it is in fact causation? And I, I believe that there is, in fact, and certainly these, uh, these doctors who wrote the study believe that there is, in fact, correlation. So uh, getting back to the pathologies, the, you know, the, the aspects of our society and, and the, the mental disorders of the young um, on the increase and the positive outcomes from young people, healthy, positive outcomes from them, their mental health, their physical health, uh, their scholastic aptitude, all of it. On almost every metric, children are getting worse and worse in the United States. And what we also see, by the way, which I want to mention, which I think is very important, 
what we're seeing is the high end of children in the United States. And when I say high end, that doesn't necessarily mean high income, but I'm saying the top performers. The top performers um, are doing better and better and massively separating themselves from sort of the great middle. But the great middle continues to get worse and worse by almost every metric. And when I say worse, again, I mean physical health, mental health, scholastic achievement, um, you know, on, on a host of measures, which we're going to get into. And on scholastic achievement, let's, let's start there um, and, and look at this chart on ACT scores. These are ACT scores, which ACT is an entrance exam for college. For those of you who you know, may not be aware, it's like the SAT is its counterpart. The ACT, uh, this chart of ACT scores goes back all the way to 1990. So more than three decades of data here in this chart that was provided by Axios. You can see that for a very, very long time, ACT scores were very predictable um, and, and right around the 20 and a half to 21 composite ACT score was the national average for a very, very long time, for decades. Uh, hardly moved. So American kids weren't getting dumber. They weren't getting smarter. Uh, they, were, they were treading water uh, at, a, at a pretty constant basis, just under 21 for most of the time on ACT scores. You can now see on the very far right-hand side of this chart, it has plunged the national average on ACT scores. Absolutely fallen off a cliff. So what's happened? Well, a lot of reasons, and we could do an entire show just on this aspect, but I, I won't do that. But suffice to say, I think the lockdowns played an incredible role here uh, for so many children losing, just absolutely losing an entire school year or even more in some places in the country where the tyranny was most acute, places like New York and Chicago and the whole state of California. So that is absolutely part of what is going on here. But it doesn't explain it in isolation. It's not the only reason that we're seeing ACT scores plunge. I also believe there are other aspects, uh, things like far too much time on screens, um, iPad kids, that has become inc an incredibly prevalent phenomenon where it's far too many American children are essentially living their lives on screens rather than interacting with each other in an interpersonal basis, rather than being truly parented, truly coached, truly educated by human beings. Um, they're interacting with screens and in many cases not interacting with screens when they do interact with screens because obviously the screens can be very informative and educational as well, but not interacting with screens in that way, generally just for, uh, for titillation, for uh, entertainment, uh, and in some cases, by the way, entertainment that is very, uh, very corrosive, uh, very dangerous kinds of entertainment, particularly pornography, but other entertainment, which is not good uh, at all for their, for their mental well-being, for their educational development. Um, so the iPad kid phenomenon, I think, is clearly part of this. I would also submit to you that part of this is the massive rise in substance abuse, particularly as it relates to marijuana, which has become very, very commonplace, very legal, of course, in a lot of the United States for adults, but very commonplace among teenagers. So a host of reasons, uh, the lockdowns, iPad kids, drug use, a host of reasons that we see this significant decline in ACT scores. But what is the reality, we can, we can certainly debate over the causes, the causes and effects. What cannot be debated is a significant sea change in scholastic achievement, at least as represented by ACT scores. Uh, something that is alarming, something that should be taken very, very seriously by all of us. Again, as parents, educators, coaches, mentors, policymakers, uh, and everyone who just cares about our society, quite frankly, even if you don't have kids, even if you don't have a role specifically or directly in kids' lives, 
uh, if you're a patriotic, caring American, if you're a, if you're a, a, a devoted Christian, if you're striving to make this world better, uh, trying to follow biblical principles in your life, if you just give a damn, uh, you care about what's happening with children in our society, uh, what's going wrong, and how do we fix it, and how do we make it go right, <laughs> go correctly again. So moving on from, from the scholastic aspect, let's look at the psychological well-being of American children. And this is from the American Psychological Association. Again, another group that I think puts out a lot of garbage, but they do also put out some very good metrics. And so pay attention to them when they put out some good metrics and things that are important. And here is a headline of a release uh, from just a couple months ago. This is very current uh, from a couple months ago in this year from the American Psychological Association. More than 20% of teens have seriously considered suicide. Psychologists and communities can help tackle the problem. More than 20% of teens have seriously considered suicide. Patriots, this is a tragedy, an absolute tragedy, and it's a five-alarm fire, okay? And all of us, all of us better be shocked by that headline and that reality that despondency out there, the prevalence of that level of despondency among teens in our country, that one out of five of them have seriously considered suicide, um, and it should spur all of us, it should motivate all of us with a, with a real sense of urgency to recognize that there's a crisis and then to commit to act to solve this crisis um, and to reduce these, these dreadful, dreadful numbers. Um, by the way, within that study from the American Psychological Association, um, it is much worse for minority children, particularly blacks, from 2018 to 2021. So pre-virus panic, okay, pre-pandemic, and it's not, again, the virus didn't do this to us. It was the panic reaction to the virus. So pre-panic versus post-panic, 2018 to 2021, according to the American Psychological Association, Black youth suicide, not thinking about it, sadly, but doing it, okay? Actually killing themselves. The worst tragedy you can think of, young people killing themselves. Between 2018 and 2021, black youth suicide increased 37%. I mean, think about that. Think about what a shocking, horrific statistic that is. Um, and black girls, by the way, had the highest increase of all. 57%, by the way, not black girls, but just all girls. Uh, so we, we have a problem with our, with our young people. I believe there's a cause and effect ratio between safetyism and the lack of independent activity from young people uh, as directed by their parents and by adults um, and these miserable outcomes. Uh, the problem is worse among girls, among girls. And this same study from the American Psychological Association, 57% of teen girls in America, 57% report, quote, persistent sadness and hopelessness. Think about that. Not just a majority, but a substantial majority, a super majority of American teen girls report, quote, persistent sadness and hopelessness. Now, look, teens have always had a certain amount of angst, right, for time immemorial. That's not new. Uh, I think that existed in the classical world. It existed in the biblical world. It existed in colonial America. It, existed, it exists today. But this is beyond normal, healthy, sort of acceptable and manageable teen angst. 
This is way beyond this current crisis of uh, a massive decline in mental health, in physical health, in scholastic aptitude, you know, all of it put together. If you look at it holistically, what is the state of young people in America? Uh, The state is clearly one of crisis and crisis that is worsening. And all of that should, uh, should not only give us pause, but should again, ring alarm bells that are that are loud and significant and drive us to action to try as best we can as individuals and corporately uh, to fix this. So let's look at this, you know, speaking of, again, the most tragic angle of all of suicide. Let's look at suicide and homicide. So teens who are killing themselves and killing each other. And not just teens in this case, actually, but young adults, because this chart covers the ages of 10 to 24. So adolescence into young adults, uh, this is the most recent updated profile of suicide and homicide in the United States. Suicide is the green line. And as you can see, tragically, sadly, this chart goes all the way back to 2001. For over two decades, the suicide rate has been rising pretty dramatically in the United States, steadily, dramatically rising. The trend is not our friend here, not at all. Um, and I don't mean to in any sense make light of, because again, there's no, there's no greater tragedy you can think of than a young person taking their own life. The homicide part of this, by the way, uh, notice homicides were actually trending down in the correct, that's the blue line there on the chart, in the correct direction, were trending down for many, many years, started to trend back up, and then absolutely vaulted higher over the last couple of years. And in this case, by the way, in terms of cause and effect, I think it is nearly 100% the policy mistakes of 2020, both the combination of the the school lockdowns as well as the BLM riots, which tore America apart during the summer of 2020, the summer of rage. And it's not just that a lot of people were harmed and in fact even killed during those riots. That certainly happened. But it is the, the culture of lawlessness and the culture of complete disregard and disrespect for law and order itself and for police specifically that flowed out of that dismal summer and out of those horrific lockdowns and the uh, concomitant riots of uh, the BLM riots of 2020. So that blue line, that jump there, I think is almost entirely attributable to the mistakes, the policy mistakes of 2020. But regardless, what we now have, tragically, sadly, is uh, both lines rising dramatically. Young people killing each other, young people killing themselves. And this chart should be a call to action for every caring, patriotic person out there. Uh, Certainly for every committed Christian, certainly for every country-loving American citizen who cares deeply about the future of our country and what can be done to help our youth and to reverse this incredibly negative trend that has become so pervasive uh, of the of the pathologies of the young becoming worse and worse. And again, I'm going to get to the, the causes. And I think one of the massive causes being that too little is being demanded of young people from adults, far too much coddling of young people, and far too little independent activity uh, for young people, particularly independent play. Now, uh, what has been the response of the medical community and of far too many parents and educators to try to deal with these traumatized teens and young adults. Well, for far too many 
of these parents and educators and medical professionals, the answer has been, well, let's just medicate them like crazy, right? Psychological drugs, psychiatric drugs. Um, the prevalence of psychiatric drugs, of psychotropic pharmaceuticals among young people has absolutely skyrocketed to levels that are, I think, unconscionable. Now, it's great for big pharma, all right? It's great for Pfizer and Moderna and companies like that. I'll have more to say about them. Some of the most evil organizations, I believe, in all of American society, big pharma, uh, what they're doing to our young people right now, what they're doing regarding uh, chemical castration and, and the mutilation of the private parts of young people, what they did to this nation during 2020 uh, with the lockdowns and the mandates of their vaccines. These are, these are intrinsically, inherently, deeply evil organizations, and they are abusing young people in many ways, but including the massive overuse of psychiatric drugs. And in many cases, when I say drugs, I mean plural because far too many of these children are being put not just on one extremely powerful drug that they probably don't need to mask their problem and deal with their problem um, in an artificial way rather than trying to fix the issue, rather than trying to, to care for them and love them and through talk therapy um, heal them, uh, mask it instead, deaden them in many ways. Um, they're, they're being prescribed cocktails, essentially, of these psychiatric drugs. And even the New York Times, again, I keep quoting all these platforms that I'm not a big fan of today, but we're going to do that. Uh, you know, look, praise platforms when they get it right. The New York Times published this article, uh, which I'd like you to see the headline. This teen was prescribed 10 psychiatric drugs. She's not alone. Increasingly anxious and depressed teens are using multiple powerful psychiatric drugs, many of them untested in adolescence or for use in tandem. Very important points there, by the way. So many of these drugs are not intended for children and have not been, had not been tested for children, nor are they intended to be used in combinations or tested to be used in combinations. And this girl, this beautiful girl uh, with significant, apparently, psychological problems. And she agreed to, you know, she's named in this story. So obviously she's being public about her situation. She was prescribed 10 psychiatric drugs at once. Uh, if we go to the next chart, th this is a picture of the, uh, th it's called a medication cascade. Um, if, <laughs> it might not call it a cascade, you might call it a flood. Again, from the New York Times. And these are, uh, her, her name's Renee. These are what Renee has been given her psychiatric medications starting at grade nine. There's four columns there uh, for her four years of high school. And in the beginning, relatively simple. Uh, she was given Prozac, you know, among other drugs, one that you might have heard of. And then a whole bunch of pharmaceuticals that I've never heard of. But once I went in and started looking into these pharmaceuticals, these are incredibly powerful psychiatric drugs, and, and look at the combinations of them that this young lady has been given. And I'm not cherry-picking, uh, as the New York Times itself said, not cherry-picking, okay, here's just an isolated case of a child who was massively over-prescribed. No, sadly, this is she is not alone, as the New York Times says, and sadly, uh, I believe this is indicative of a much larger whole. Now, are millions and millions of American kids taking all of these Powerful psychiatric drugs at once? No, that, I don't think that is the case, although we really don't know. There's not comprehensive data out there. But what we do know for a fact is that millions and millions of American kids are taking at least one of these psychiatric drugs um, to try to treat their, their maladies. And let me just be clear here. I'm not a physician, uh, not, a psych, uh, not a psychiatrist, not a psychologist. And I, I don't dispute that there are 
some cases where pharmaceuticals might, might be helpful to children who are suffering from mental disorders and mental illness. I think those cases are probably very rare. Um, and I think that the, the use of these powerful psychiatric drugs upon young forming minds uh, should be very, very judicious. Um, and what I do know for certain, I don't have to be a doctor or a PhD, an MD or a PhD to know this, uh, the pharmaceutical companies have every incentive, every incentive to aggressively push the use of these psychiatric drugs upon children. And so think of the setup here. We have um, a massive group of children who are deeply unhappy. 57% of American teen girls reporting hopelessness, right? So a, a massive group, millions upon millions of American children who are deeply unhappy, who are in many ways troubled. And again, we'll get into why are they troubled and how do we fix it? Um, but the reality is they're troubled. Uh, there are pathologies there. There are mental disorders. There's mental illness. Rather than trying to deal with the root causes of that illness, rather than trying to, through responsible therapy, through pastoring, through prayer, through talk therapy, rather than trying to heal them, uh, instead, a massive over-reliance on medication. And why? Well, who benefits? You know, qui bono, qui bono. That's a phrase uh, in the Latin, by the way. Uh, and by the way, a shout out. Speaking of great educators, I had a fantastic Latin teacher in high school. I went to Marion Catholic High School in Chicago Heights, Illinois. Sister Mary Gale was my Latin instructor, and she had such a passion for the Latin language. Don't tell her that the, the Latin language is dead. <laughs> it wasn't dead in Sister Mary Gale's class. I'll, I'll promise you that. Uh, and not just a passion for the language, not just for Roman history, but most importantly, of course, for children. And she was one of, of many amazing educators who blessed my life. And, and I'm sure when you think back on your time, you have similar uh, educators who are, who are just gifts to you. And, uh, and there are far too many people in education, unfortunately, right now who do not take that same kind of approach and care and love and, um, and, and diligence when it comes to, to children today, particularly those in uh, the administrative realm, not so much classroom teachers, but the administrative staff of education. But she taught us that in, in the courts of Rome, qui bono, was a phrase that was constantly repeat, repeated. And much of our jurisprudence, by the way, in the United States flows not just from English common law, but really from, from cl classical antiquity. And so we, we derive a lot from, from Greece and Rome. And so qui bono, it means who benefits? Who benefits? And that that should always be asked when considering the merits of, of any case, of any situation, of any apparently public, pu puzzling or contradictory um, uh, decision to be made, any trial, as it were, whether it's an actual trial or you know, a, a trial in your head. So who benefits? Well, Big Pharma. Big Pharma massively benefited from the lockdowns. Um, Big Pharma is still to this day a huge beneficiary and growing of this ludicrous and totally immoral trend to, quote, transition children. I think we should, I say quote, because it's really not about transitioning. It's about mutilating children, whether it's through chemical castration or through totally uh, abusive, barbaric surgeries to harm their private parts. And who benefits from qui bono? Who benefits uh, from this mental health crisis in the United States among the youth of America? Uh, well, big pharma, of course. And by the way, so carrying this a step forward, qui bono, who, benef who benefits from big pharma besides big, big pharma itself? Guess who? Big media. Big media hand in glove with big pharma. Notice, if you pay attention, for example, if you watch the Sunday morning news shows, uh, and that is sort of prime time for politics, right? Sunday morning 
news shows, um, long standing, decades long tradition in American public life that some of the most significant interviews of the week take place on those shows, Meet the Press and that sort of, uh, you know, back in the day this week with David Brinkley, all of those shows. I guess it's George Stephanopoulos now, I think, on this week. Those shows are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly supported by Big Pharma. If you look at the advertising as presented by blank, you know, fill in the blank, and it's Big Pharma companies. The, the news industry, the legacy news industry on the whole is massively supported by Big Pharma. I'll challenge you, watch, watch MSNBC, watch those Sunday morning news shows. Go to uh, legacy media or establishment media websites, places like Politico, and see how many of their stories are brought to you by Big Pharma. It's a form of payola, by the way. That's exactly what it is. Let's just call it spade a spade. Big Pharma is paying the news media uh, to either ignore bad stories about them or to provide good coverage to Big Pharma. It's payola. It's pay to play. They are simply paying quite literally for that kind of treatment. By the way, on this point, and this has nothing to do with, with the children of America, but it's, it's kind of a humorous aside. Uh, Djokovic, who won the U.S. Open and who now holds the record for the most major wins of, of any male tennis player ever, um, Novak Djokovic, and I have just enormous respect for him. He's somebody who took an incredibly brave stand and said, I am literally one of the most fit athletes in the world I am statistically invulnerable to the China virus, uh, to, to the COVID virus. And no, I am not going to take a brand new, largely untested, very controversial big pharma Fauci injection. Um, and he was, he was unfortunately punished severely for it. Uh, you know, was basically imprisoned in Australia before he was kicked out of the country and unable to participate in the Australian Open, was excluded from the United States, something we should hold our heads in shame about, that we would not allow him to come to the United States. Mind you, 8 million illegals can cross the U.S.-Mexico border. We have no idea who they are or what kind of diseases they may be carrying across the U.S.-Mexico border. They're fine. But one of the most fit athletes in the world, Jugovic, no, not fine, can't come here and play in the United States Open. Well, he finally... Uh, was allowed to play in the U.S. Open because we finally have lifted that travel ban where we would not allow any foreign nationals to enter the United States unless they were vaccinated. A, a ludicrous, ludicrous and tyrannical and unscientific prohibition. Uh, he finally came. He won the U.S. Open in magnificent fashion. And I know I, for one, other than the Americans, was was very, very much cheering for him. I always cheer for an American. Uh, but other than the Americans, he was certainly my favorite and is my favorite tennis player. But this is where I'm getting with Big Pharma. Uh, when he won the quote shot of the day, I'm not kidding you. The shot of the day was brought to you by Moderna. Okay. By a vaccine maker. And the shot of the day was his winning shot and, and shot. I think very intentionally, right? Double meaning, uh, being a, a, a pun, I'll get your shot from Moderna. And the shot of the day was Novak Djokovic and, uh, and signage all over the stadium, uh, from Moderna, the major sponsor of not just the television, but the, the, uh, stadium, sh uh, framing, of the U.S. Open, so uh, you know, you, sometimes you, if you don't laugh, you'll cry, and that was something that really made me laugh, and I'm sure it made uh, Jogovic laugh deep down. But something that's not funny in the least, uh, something that is is quite tragic, is by the way, speaking of, of drugs, and now we're we're moving from pharmaceuticals into street drugs, mostly, although some kids do overdose certainly on pharmaceutical drugs um, as well. Let's take a look at, at overdoses. Uh, continuing with, and again, I want to answer the question here because in the Journal of Pediatrics, their thesis was mental disorders are rising, and here's why they're rising, at least in part, because of a lack of independent activity 
among young people. So we have to analyze both parts of that thesis and and examine whether or not they're they're valid and correct. And if so, and my answers are yes and yes, um, what are the corrective actions then? What can we do to reverse these these terrible trends? So uh, continuing with that first part of you know is mental illness is mental are mental disorders and pathologies on the rise? Will tragically overdose deaths as one of the important metrics show us that yes they're rising massively? So let's look at this really sad, just tragically sad chart from Kaiser Family Foundation. That's the KFS, the KFF. These are drug overdose death rates before and during the pandemic. And again, I, I would uh, change that headline if it were up to me. I would say the panic to the pandemic. Uh, but regardless, the point is uh, the overdose rate, as you can see, went from 21.6. This is per 100,000 people, I believe, 21.6 to 322 an increase of 50% in just two years from 2019 to 2021. This shocked even me. I knew overdose deaths were on the rise nationally, right? We hit a really tragic uh, uh, bar last year in the United States, actually two years ago. It was the first time in all of American history that we had over 100,000 overdose deaths in total in the United States. Uh, sadly, that was two years ago, we hit it again last year. I think we're well on our way to hitting it again this year, over 100,000 Americans dying from drug overdoses, largely because of the fentanyl, uh, which is crossing our incredibly porous border that Joe Biden has thrown wide open. Um, so I knew there was you know, a, a large increase in overdose, but I, I expected most of that, and most of it is, in fact, um, young men who are, who are adults uh, in their 20s and 30s. What I did not expect um, was to see the overdose rates, rates to be this dramatic for young people in the United States. Uh, and the fact that we are 50% higher in just a matter of a couple of years. And again, a lot of causes going into here, lockdowns I think absolutely being one of them. But my point here is to, to make to you is, it's not just um, the, the dependency on pharmaceutical drugs, but also on street drugs or illegal drugs that is resulting in really terrible consequences for young people in our country. Now, let's move on to another metric that I think is important. It's not as tragic as young people dying, killing themselves or dying from, from overdoses, but it's still really, really problematic. Uh, and that is the, the loss of physical health and physical vitality among young people in our, in our society. So it's not just that they're struggling mentally, not just that their, their grades and their test scores are suffering. All of that is happening, but also in terms of their physical vigor, um, there is a substantial decline. And I think one of the easiest ways to, to analyze this is to look at obesity. And so present to you here a, a trend. Uh, and the, this is a trend line going all the way back to the 1960s. So a tremendous amount of data here going all the way back to the 1960s. Trends in obesity among children and adolescents, 2 through 19 years old. And they break this down. Um, there's, there's four lines, as you can see there. They break this down by age groups. So the the darker green line is 6 to 11-year-olds. The lighter green line at the very top there is 12 to 19-year-olds. Now, as you can see, and then the, the, the light blue line is all ages. So obesity is increasing significantly among all Americans. Okay, So this is an American problem, not just a, a young problem. But it is worse for young people. Toddlers are in the dark blue line, so toddlers are, are doing okay, thankfully. right? They're, 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 they're getting more obese, but at a much lower rate. Uh, than, than American adults are. But teens, unfortunately, are getting obese 
at a far faster rate than the rest of Americans who are getting obese at an alarming rate. And the point here is there's something really bad going on with teens. And I think all of us you know, know this basically even just anecdotally, right? Um, if you're you know, roughly my age, if you're middle age, when you were young, you know, there might be an obese kid or two in a classroom, uh, but that would be it. It was, it was an exception. Uh, if you walk into most American classrooms now, half the kids are obese, sometimes significantly more, right? Uh, that's the reality. And again, not just my opinion, you know, that is reflected here by the data. Um, and I would submit to you that you know, a lot of this is because of getting back to the Journal of Pediatrics, a lot of this is because of a lack of independent activity, particularly independent play. Far too many kids only engaging in activity that is directed by their parents or effectively being babysat and even parented by a tablet. iPad kids who spend way too much time on screens and way too little time running, playing, climbing, wrestling, doing all the kinds of things that rambunctious young children and teens should be doing. And that is shown by the data on obesity. Uh, and again, I think there are other causes here. Uh, bad food uh, that affects all of American society, far too much processed food. There's, there's a lot of inputs here, but I want to focus on the young people and the fact that this is alarming. This surprised me, frankly, folks. I did not believe that young people would be getting fat at a higher rate uh, than older adults. I just didn't expect that from teenagers. But that is uh, the data as revealed. And, you know, I say this a lot. The reality is we, we, we cannot... Uh, simply close our eyes and hope that the world will be the way we want it to be. We have to be adults, uh, and, and in this case, be adults who care about children and analyze the world and assess the world as it is, and then determine how we can change as it is if that current state is uh, is regrettable, and that is certainly the case here. So, uh, by the way, getting back to that study, I want to give you another quote here. I'll uh, put it up on the screen. What has declined... Specifically, is children's freedom to engage in activities that involve some degree of risk and personal responsibility away from adults. Activities that involve risk and personal responsibilities away from adults. I think this is incredibly important. You know, I mentioned before, risk is not a four-letter word. At least it shouldn't be. Uh, but we've made it that in American society. And we have exalted safetyism um, to a pedestal where it does not belong. Now, do we all want our children to be safe? Of course we do, right? Of course we do. If we're loving parents, if we're caring educators, if we're just simply good people and good citizens of the society, of course we want everybody to be safe and particularly the young, right, who are more vulnerable and more apt to make dumb decisions uh, than, than older folks. So a, um, a protectiveness is totally warranted and correct and laudable. But the elevation of safetyism um, as the almost singular goal of governing the activities of children, is that laudable? No, in no sense. And paradoxically, uh, there's a real paradox here. By the way, my favorite author of all time is G.K. Chesterton. If you ever read his works, uh, he constantly talks about how almost all of life is a paradox. Uh, but particularly theology and philosophy, it's a paradox. So the paradox here is the more you seek to avoid all risk, you are actually inviting all kinds of unintended risk into your life. And you may be, for the time being, avoiding the kinds of risks of a child getting hurt, for example, 
um, during aggressive play or you know falling off of the the swing set because they're not actually swinging on the swing, but instead climbing on top of the swing set um, and hurting themselves. You may be avoiding some of those near term risks, um, but you are you are putting them at much greater risk, at much greater peril long term uh, by preventing them from becoming well adjusted, happy sensible children ready to take on the responsibilities of adulthood and citizenship in our society. So there's a, there's a, a paradox, I think, there um, that, is, that is incredibly important. And we cannot allow our society to continue to elevate safetyism as the primary goal of American life. So uh, what do I mean by that? You know, I mentioned the playground, for example. Um, and again, this is not just nostalgic or sentimental thinking. It's not just sentimentality. The reality is children in decades gone by had far more time and ability and, and willingness from parents uh, to play on their own in an unstructured and an unsupervised way at playgrounds compared to today. That's just reality and it's undeniable. Um, now, the results of that prior era of more independent activity, of less structure, less supervised play, uh, some of the realities were more injuries, right? Naturally, right? Um, but the realities and the, and the consequences of what we're doing now are deep systemic levels of mental disorders because we are not allowing children to be children um, and to properly learn how to, how to approach risk how to approach life, how to interact with each other in a way that is independent of parents. You know, I raised my kids in the city of Chicago, and so this was a difficult issue because Chicago uh, has become an increasingly dangerous city. I think it's the most dangerous city in the developed world right now, as a matter of fact. So I was not about to send my young children out in the streets of Chicago and say, okay, go wherever you want, and you know, see you in a few hours. I mean, no, that would not be, uh, would not be proper parenting, would not be judicious. Uh, but even within Chicago, for example, I always made a point of when we went to the park of not directing their play every time. Now, some of the time, absolutely, and they, they want to play with dad. They want to play, uh, you know, catch with dad, or they want to play a specific game with dad. But some of the time, quite intentionally, would go to the park. And while I was there, um, you know, again, for reasons basically of safety, because it was, you know, unfortunately a place where there are real dangers, not perceived dangers. Um, while I was there, I was not directing their play and, and, and forcing them essentially to deal with each other, to deal with other children, um, and to play independently. And I think that's very important. And I think, by the way, a lot of us on the right, um, because we are so deeply committed to our families, because we believe so strongly in family values, I think we are susceptible, while we are not like the leftists and the secular humanists, we're not exalting safetyism, we are still susceptible to this temptation to overmanage our children. Right, because we love them so much, and because we want the best for them in so many ways, there is a temptation. Uh, you know, the road to perdition is paved with good intentions. Out of good intentions, uh, to try to to protect our children too much. Right. So this is not just a fault of the secular humanist left, although I think that they are the you know primary, um, uh, the, the primary problem, and that mindset is the primary problem when it comes to the uh, the almost veneration of safetyism. But we on the right. We do have, you know, significant risk in this in this aspect, and I will be the first to confess to you as a parent. I think I probably overdid it a little bit in that regard, meaning I probably didn't allow for enough, or really force enough independent play. Probably a bit too much of it when my kids were young, 
was directed and supervised by me and did that with the best of intentions. But for those of you, my children are in their teens and 20s now, so I mean, play is no longer an issue. Um, but for those of you with young children or young grandchildren, I would implore you um, to, to think deeply about that and to make sure that they do get plenty of opportunity for unsupervised, undirected play and other activities. It doesn't just have to be play, by the way. Um, other examples would be uh, teen jobs, things that are, uh, that are in- involving responsibility and independent activity for young people that is not necessarily in the direction of their parents um, and perhaps not even in the direction of, uh, of supervising adults at all. Part of the point here, by the way, and again, I want to talk about the, uh, the mistakes made out of the best of intentions. Uh, for those of us who care deeply about our children's academic uh, progress and, and, and their education, I think there is also a, a very significant movement uh, toward, uh, there has been a very significant movement toward far too much homework. Where kids talk about kids who are programmed. So, you know, I, I mentioned before the kids who are effectively raised by screens, and I think we see a lot of that kids uh, who who where very little is demanded of them academically and otherwise. Now we had the flip side: kids uh, who generally go to very high achieving schools, kids who have parents who really prioritize. Uh, education, and we think all of that is a positive, and it is, and it can be, and it should be, but it can be, like any positive, overdone, and it has been, in my view, decidedly overdone in terms of homework. And one of the reasons that a lot of American children live such incredibly structured lives with so little independent activity is because they go from a school where their life is entirely uh, scheduled from you know roughly 8 a.m. till 3 p.m., and then they have three or four hours of homework if they're in very demanding high schools, for example, where that is completely structured uh, once they're home and the only time available at all besides that is to eat dinner and then to go to bed. And this, again, not just my opinion, this is from the study from the Journal of Pediatrics. Let's look at this quote. Between 1950 and 2010, so this isn't very recent, but this is the best, the most recent example they had. And I think things have gotten worse since 2010, not better. Between 1950 and 2010, the average length of the school year in the United States increased by five weeks. So think about that. Much longer school year. More than a month, five weeks of additional school from 1950. Are kids smarter than they were in 1950? No, they're not. Okay, between 1950 and 2010, the average length of the school year in the U.S. increased by five weeks. Homework, which was once rare or non-existent in elementary school, is now common even in kindergarten. One study revealed that the average amount of time that U.S. children in school aged six to eight spent at school plus homework increased by 11 hours per week between 1981 and 2003, equivalent to adding a day and a half to an adult's work week. So if you are a, a working person, think of adding an entire day and a half more of work for you, okay? So let's say that you're able to get your work done Monday to Friday on a relatively reasonable schedule, 40-hour work week. We're now going to tell you, you know what? You also have to work all day on Saturday, and you got to work half the day on Sunday, okay? You probably wouldn't be very happy if we did that to you, right? If you say, wait a second, I've got a good job, I'm efficient, I'm productive, and I get my work done Monday to Friday. I'm not working all day Saturday and half the day on Sunday. No way. Okay, but that's what we've done to children, ages six to eight. I mean, that young. Between the added school days, five more weeks of school, plus uh, a ridiculous amount of homework on these children. And by the way, I'm, I'm so glad that they pointed out, these doctors did, that homework used to be rare. It used to be non-existent, certainly in elementary school. I would submit to you it should be again. 
You're telling me that those seven hours of classroom time are not enough to effectively teach these children what they need to learn? If that's the case, if you can't teach it in seven hours, right, then either you're trying to put too much into their heads that is not useful or you're a really bad teacher, okay? And this is a bad curriculum because seven hours a day should be plenty. Now, I suspect there's a few things going on here. One is so much of the time is spent on BS, on toxic narrative crap, right? Filling their heads with indoctrination, mostly from a secular humanist leftist perspective. I think that's one of the reasons is way too much propagandizing in school, not nearly enough focus on the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, but I also think, unfortunately, the reality is really lousy curricula, uh, curriculums, which again are very politically polluted in this country and, and just bad curricula generally. And frankly, a lot of bad teachers, a lot of wonderful teachers out there. I named one earlier uh, who had certainly had a great effect on my life, but a lot of bad teachers out there. The point is piling homework onto these high achieving kids, particularly, I don't think this is an issue broadly for all kids, but particularly upon the high achieving kids, just necessitates that there is a heck of a lot less time for them to engage in independent activities. That's just the reality. And I think part of this, by the way, getting back to this, this worship of safetyism is because school is considered to be safe. So one of the reasons that we keep expanding the school day, the school year, um, you know, after school programs now, right, where a lot of kids are at school until 5 or 6 p.m., is because school is considered to be safe. You might say, well, school is safe, Steve. Is it? Is it? Think about that for a moment. First, on the mental side, I don't think it's safe at all, ideologically. And by the way, you might think, well, I send my kids to private school, so it's okay. They're not going to be, uh, you know, the teachers' union, uh, Randy Weingarten and her minions, you know, they can't touch my kid because he's in a Christian school or he's in a private school. I would submit to you that many of the private schools, certainly not all, obviously, many of the private schools, when it comes to the indoctrination and the propaganda aspects, they are actually worse than the public schools. So take a really close look at any school where you are sending your children or would send your children, even if it's private. So I think, you know, mentally certainly not safe, but let's just go to the actual physical part of it, you know, physical safety. There is an epidemic of videoed school fights in America right now. I mean, it's an absolute epidemic. I don't seek these out in any sense. As a matter of fact, it turns my stomach when I see them online, but I'm a very online person because it's a big part of my job, politically speaking, and it is impossible to go through any of the social media sites, but particularly Twitter, you know, now X, without seeing, unfortunately, just a raft, I mean, just a torrent of school fight videos. And I think, unfortunately, there is a cause effect there. We're talking a lot about cause and effect, right, with our children. There's a cause and effect. A lot of the fights are happening because they want them to be filmed, right? Because this is a terrible and unfortunate trend. And of course, we don't even have to get into the, the more horrific aspect of school shootings. But, you know, is school truly a, a safe place? I, I don't think it is, but there's the perception that school is safe, that it's safe for your body, safe for your mind. And because we worship safetyism in too much of American society, the, the, the result then, the decision is, well, school is safe. Let's extend um, the, the presence in school. It's highly structured, highly supervised activities, not independent play. So, you know, I think, and listen, I feel for parents, and again, I'm admitting to some of my own mistakes in this regard uh, with my children when they were young, but parents are, are right now, you know, barraged with, with two messages in our society. Number one, that unsupervised children equals unsafe. If they're unsupervised, uh, they're unsafe. Uh, and that's just not true. 
It's a lie. It may be true, right? But again, we should all be engaging in reasonable risk management. And reasonable risk management doesn't mean avoiding all risk. You know, to give you another example from the playground, uh, I was primarily the one uh, who would take the kids to the park. My wife just wasn't her cup of tea, right? She's an amazing, dedicated, stay-at-home mother, but almost never took them to the park. That was dad's job. And when I would take them to the park, it was mostly mothers in my neighborhood uh, where we raised the kids in Chicago. Mostly moms. Often I was the only dad or one of the only dads there. And uh, it was very fascinating to see that the mothers, understandably, right, because of their maternal instincts and they they're t- tend to be more protective than fathers, um, which is why, of course, every child performs best with a married mother and father in their home. Uh, the mothers were much more protective, much less willing to let the kids engage in any kind of risky activity at the park. Uh, I took a very different approach, right? And was more than willing, you know, within reason, uh, to let the kids do things that, sure, were a bit dangerous. You know, as I mentioned, not just swinging on the actual swing set, you know, sitting your rear end down and swinging nicely, but no, uh, swinging wildly. I mean, getting as high as you could absolutely get, jumping off at the height, uh, climbing on top of the swing set, uh, you know, climbing on the bar at the top. I I let them engage in that. And did it worry me? Sure, at times. And there were times, of course, when I thought, ooh, this ends badly. We're going to have an ER visit. And I'm going to have to explain that to my wife, (laughs) that we're going to have an ER visit. But again, taking responsible risks and allowing them to play uh, in a way that may be a bit risky is part of good parenting. And it's, it's part where, where dads tend to excel uh, and, and tend to thrive far more than a mother would. But uh, you, know, I, you can add this to the list of you know, the causation in terms of cause effect. Uh, there, are, there are so many fathers who are either completely absent, just not in the children's lives, or if they are physically present, um, in many ways mentally checked out and are not really raising their children, you know, yet another reason why we have a, a coddled generation. If, if a child is only or primarily raised by mothers who tend to be far more protective and far less risk tolerant, than, than fathers, you know, this is another aspect. So that's the first message, you know, again, there's a barrage upon parents of these two messages, and I think neither of them is true. So unsupervised children are unsafe, don't allow it. Supervision constantly, safety above all, safety uber alles. And then uh, the second aspect is the second message to, to parents, uh, you know, and again, good intentions, the road to hell is paid with, with good intentions. That high achievement in school is a paramount goal of raising children. That high academic achievement is a paramount goal, maybe the singular paramount goal in raising children. Now, listen, I believe in academic achievement. Absolutely, right? It is, it is of course, important. Um, but should it be paramount? You know, should it be the, the singular focus? You know, I would argue no. Um, and that, that pursuit, the reason this is, is critical here, this, this debate is critical, is that um, if you make academic achievement the paramount goal, you are by necessity going to be involved almost entirely in highly structured, highly supervised activities. And I would argue, while you may think you're being demanding of your child, that you're actually coddling your child. Not to mention, so many of these academic institutions, particularly at the university level, but even even at the secondary and primary levels, so many of these institutions are are so thoroughly corrupted uh, that achieving high marks from these schools, while it may be... Uh, you know, generally a good thing is is hardly a goal worth pursuing at all costs. Uh, it, it it should hardly be the primary focus. You know, and listen, I went to one of these fancy universities, and I can tell you this: the only hard part is getting in. Okay, once you're there at these fancy universities, it is not rigorous, demanding education. The hard part is getting in the door. All right, 
uh, that's it. So uh, don't don't fixate on whether or not little Johnny or little Jane can get into Harvard. If they can, fantastic. And that might be a wonderful thing. And admission to Harvard is incredibly difficult. Um, but is there real education going on? Once little Johnny or little Jane is there, I would argue very rarely um, at that level. So let's talk about solutions. You know, what kinds of, of solutions? Because I always want to do this in a Steve Cortez show, uh, not just curse the darkness, but light a candle. Okay, so we have a problem in this country, right? We have mental disorders severely afflicting young people at, at an absolutely alarming rate and a worsening rate in this country. If you believe the premise, and I do, the, the cause and effect premise, that at least a large driver of these mental disorders um, is, the, is the coddling of American children, um, the, the wor- almost worship of safetyism, and because of, uh, of those two aspects, those two traits in parenting and in policy regarding children, because of them, uh, that, that American children are, are less, uh, less involved in independent activity than they should be and therefore less prepared, less equipped to be healthy in every way, physically and mentally, spiritually healthy young adults and eventually full-grown adults. Um, what, are, what are solutions? And you know, look, there are aspects of this regarding the family, regarding schools, uh, and then what I would call the macro, you know, meaning, meaning policy. So uh, the first thing, which I think is incredibly important for families, is just be cognizant of it, right? Just be aware of this. Awareness alone is a big step because I think a lot of parents say, oh, I'm being a good parent. I, you know, I'm, I love my kids. I'm so involved in their lives. And all of that is, is fantastic. Again, good intentions. Um, but are you overmanaging them? Are you micromanaging them? Um, and is there a lack and perhaps even just a void of real independent activity in their lives? So you know, I would encourage you, and again, I think I made mistakes in this realm, um, every parent makes mistakes, of course. There's no perfect parents. But uh, if, if you are doing that out of good intentions, uh, I encourage you to, to rethink it regarding schools. And, and this is where a lot, of, uh, a lot of motivated parents can have a lot of effect. It's, it, you, know, you might say, gosh, it's hard for me to have an effect at the national level you know, regarding sort of national policy. But regarding schools, uh, and you know, we saw this during and after the lockdowns, how much power really motivated parents have at uh, school boards, whether they're on the school board themselves or being an activist, being a, an, an involved, dedicated, engaged parents attending the meeting, uh, being equipped and, and um, informed on what's going on. You know, we saw the power of parents at the local level for school boards. And I would encourage you to take action here and to act in your schools, uh, that, that children should be allowed, even within school, to have more independent activity time, more free play time. A lot of schools, for example, uh, and I know this from my own children, Schools have eliminated, have reduced or eliminated recess. If anything, recess should be increased, right? There should be more recess, not less, right? Or none, as is the case in some schools. Um, so advocate for that. Advocate for less homework, for shorter school days, for shorter school years, uh, all of the above. So, you know, I think those are important. And then on the, on the policy level, you know, at the, at the macro level, um, I think it's, it's, I think it's key for us to acknowledge that we have created this false god of safetyism and that the consequences are extremely nefarious for our children. That is simply the reality. And a lot of this, a lot of this, by the way, was majorly worsened and exacerbated by the COVID lockdowns. 
uh, and the the ensuing mental health problems, which were already existent, the trends which were already bad, uh, which have gotten dramatically worse since the lockdown. So let me let me close with this, since I talked you know several times about good intentions. Uh, let me close with a one more quote from the Journal of Pediatrics um, about the the cause of decline in children's mental well being. The results of good intentions carried too far. Intentions to protect children and provide what many believed to be better interpreted as more schooling, both in and out of actual schools. The result of good intentions carried too far. Patriots, the kids are not all right in American society. And it is the responsibility of all of us to try to fix and reverse this very troubling trend. Uh, Part of that involves making sure, doing everything within our power as parents, educators, policymakers, to make sure that children once again are allowed to truly be kids and to engage in significant independent activity that is not directly, directly supervised or orchestrated by adults, whether parents or teachers or coaches or others. This is a, a vexing problem. It's, a, it's an, a depressing problem, quite frankly, the, the mental, physical, psychological state of our children in this country. Um, but an awareness of the trend, being educated on the trend, will lead us to places where I believe we can fix and reverse uh, this trend and save our children, and in doing so, save the future of our republic and our society that we so love. Thanks for joining me.